0: Join me as we turn in our Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. Um, 1 Samuel ought to give it, kind of give it away who we're going to talk about. Um, We're going to talk about David, but he's not really the focus this morning. It's more the son of Saul, Jonathan, that we're going to talk about. Um, Now, I'm going to pull a Charles Spurgeon on you tonight. Um, We have a relatively lengthy passage, 23 verses. And what Spurgeon would often do when he had a large passage, especially if it wasn't going to be a detailed exposition, he would just read you one verse, and then the rest would come out in the message. So I'm just going to read you one verse, and that's the 17th verse, because it, it, it really kind of captures the very heart of what this passage is, uh, uh, a, a man who is caught between two kingdoms, Jonathan who had such a heart to him. So, hear now the word of God as it is given to us in the book of 1 Samuel. I'm going to be reading the 17th verse out of the 20th chapter, although we are going to be going through the whole story of verses 1 through 23. But I'm just reading verse 17 this evening. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, For he loved him as he loved his own soul. And may the Lord bless that reading of his word to our understanding this evening. And may he bring it alive for us. Let's ask him to do just that. Our dear Lord, as we look at this much more extensive passage this evening, and we, we trace the story and we look at Jonathan as a man between two kingdoms. May it come home to us that we're pretty much in the same situation. We are between two kingdoms, a kingdom of darkness that surrounds us and a kingdom of light that beckons us, your kingdom, your kingdom that you have put in our heart, that you is is here right now in one sense, but then in another much more glorious sense is not here. And so, dear Lord, we ask that we would understand or or take the lesson that Jonathan is going to teach us tonight about what to do when you find yourself caught between two kingdoms. We'll give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, on New Year's Eve, and those of you who have been here for some time know this, but if you haven't spent New Year's Eve with us before, we sort of have a tradition. I won't say it's a series. It's more of a tradition. I look through Scripture for Scripture stories or verses that speak of people that are sort of in the same situation that we're in tonight. New Year's Eve is a very unusual night because we are at the end of one year. It's behind us. There's nothing we can do. We can't go back. So the only thing we can do is go forward. But the new year that awaits us is a new year and we don't know what's going to happen. So there can be a certain degree of consternation there. And so normally what I do on New Year's Eve is I'll look through Scripture and I'll see find a story of of a group of people or a person Who sort of have their back up against the wall where they can't go backwards. They've just got to go forward. Like the children of Israel when they're, you know, they've got the armies of Pharaoh behind them and the Red Sea in front of them. Man, there's nothing they can do but go forward. Uh, so there's so many stories. You'd be surprised how many stories in scripture there are that are like this because the underlying, the, the the underlying message or principle is in each one of these, you see the glory of God and you you see that what he wants us to do in those situations is to trust him and and to uh, recognize his providence and his sovereignty and with humility to, to recognize he's a good God and he does good things, even if it doesn't seem like that to us. And so um, we're, we don't have so much a back-against-the-wall uh, story tonight as we do. Caught between two kingdoms, caught between two entities. And that's where Jonathan finds himself. And even though the narrative that we're going to jump into this evening is a narrative about David, that's what this whole uh, uh, story that's, that's tracing its way through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is about David. But we're really going to look at Jonathan tonight. And, and if you've been around here very long, you know that Jonathan is one of my favorite Old Testament saints. Well, actually one of my favorite saints in all of scripture because he was a man who truly knew how to love. He had a great discernment and he trusted God. I, we've already actually looked at uh, him twice uh, in these New Year's Eve uh, sessions that we have when he and his armor bearer attacked the entire Philistine garrison. Uh, that was one time and then I think it was last year that we looked at his son Mephibosheth and Notice that he was in the same situation. So um, that's, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Jonathan and the dilemma that he finds himself in. And since we are between two years, that's going to help us recognize that we're also between two kingdoms, that, that we live in a sewer. I mean, we live in the kingdom of darkness. It's all around us. But this is not our citizenship. We don't belong here. OK, our citizenship is in heaven. And so therefore, we're in a very, very similar situation to what Jonathan is in. So let me see if I can get, pick up the narrative uh, and insert us right where we ought to be. This is the part of David's life where he is just finding out that Saul, who's the king, of course, of Israel, has a maniacal jealousy of him and wants to kill him. By the time we get into this story, Saul has already tried to kill David just recently three times. First of all, he Throws a spear at him at the table, trying to pin him against the wall. That's not funny. Um, It certainly wasn't funny for David. I I know, but I mean, it's just the shows how insane actually Saul is going. But and then David, of course, is is the golden boy, and and everyone loves him. You may remember that he had great prowess on the on the um, battlefield, and the women would would sing when he came back. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Well, this just began to really needle Saul, and so finally he decides he's going to get rid of David. Well, David marries Saul's daughter, Michael, and so Saul has just sent, just recently when this story begins, he's just sent some messengers, quote-unquote, actually they're assassins, to his home to do away with David. Michael helps David, makes a little... Uh, fake david in the bed and said he's sick and lets him down the window and and so they're foiled in that attempt so david runs and takes off to naoth where uh, samuel is and samuel hides him uh, saul finds out sends his henchmen there but something kind of amazing happens it's just one of those sort of anomalies in scripture they get there and the scripture says they all fell down and started to prophesy. Um, and, and I don't that's, that word is kind of used broadly in the Old Testament, so I don't think it means they were prophesied, they were given prophecies. It was more of they just kind of fell into a, a trance, uh, immobilized, so that they couldn't kill David. Well, Saul himself decided he was going to go there and find David and kill him, and the same thing happened to him. He fell down and prophesied. So David was able to escape. And that is exactly where we're going to pick up the narrative this evening is David going back to Gibeah and then having a conversation with Jonathan who seems to have told him that everything was fine. Don't worry about my dad. He's good. You know, I, I talked to him and he promised he's not going to kill you. So David's not 100% sure about what's going on when we reach this. So we're going to start in the 20th chapter in the first verse now. Now, just very carefully, let me, t- let me t- quickly tell you this it 's not my intention to do a, an exposition tonight that 's kind of the reason I just read you the one verse. Uh, I really want to just sort of tell the story it 's new year 's Eve, and I know that you know i, I don 't want to get too technical about anything uh, t- uh, tonight, but I do want you to see something about the story because I, we are going to draw some conclusions and some application from it first of all, I want you to remember, and most of you know this that David is a type of Christ in Old Testament typology it means that he points us forward to Jesus David's kingdom is also a type of the kingdom of God that Jesus brought so very close relationship so it's perfectly natural for us if we see a relationship of Jonathan between two kingdoms for us to make that a relationship between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness and that's Kind of what we're going to do. Now, this is as technical as I'm going to get, so just give me a half a second. I want you to notice that this is a a, a very simple chiasm, and some of you know what that is. Um, it, it's 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 Hebrew poetry, and, and and the Hebrews rhymed thoughts. They didn't rhyme words, and when they did something in a chiasm, it's kind of like a pyramid. And when they tell the story, the first point is going to correspond with the point over here. And then the next point would correspond with that point. And they worked their way up this pyramid until they got to the center. And whatever is in the center of the chiasm, that's what the Bible wants you to know. Now, this is a very simple one. It's not a lot of points. It's just two points, one in the front and one in the end. And then the center. And the reason I'm telling you this is we're going to look at 1 through 10, and then we're going to jump to 18 through 22, then we're going to come back to 11 through 17, and you're going to wonder, what on earth is he doing? Um, The reason is because we're going to go up one side of that pyramid, we're going to go down the other side, then we're going to see... What is so important right in the middle. So now that you're thoroughly confused, let's jump into this and see what it has to say. Look in the first verse. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now David is basically asking Jonathan these questions for two reasons. On the one hand, he just wants information. Jonathan is Saul's son. So he really wants to know, Jonathan, what on earth is your father doing? What did I do wrong, and why does he want to kill me? As I said, this is early on in the maniacal chasing that really is going to occupy the rest of Saul's life trying to kill David. But there's another reason, and you'll pick this up in the language because David is not sure at this time about Jonathan. Now, Jonathan has already made an amazing commitment to David. If we go back to the 18th chapter. It says this. It says that as soon as he had finished... This is Jonathan speaking to Saul... The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And so Jonathan has a deep attachment and loyalty to to David. And he makes a covenant with David. He's already done this. And he did something extraordinary in the third uh, verse of that uh, 18th chapter. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now what Jonathan is saying to David is, I am yours lock, stock and barrel. You have my sword. You have my bow. I will fight for you. I will die for you. My soul is knit to you. I am your friend and your follower forever. Now, this is pretty amazing when you think about the fact that Jonathan happens to be the heir apparent. He's the crown prince. He's next in line for the throne. And David's a shepherd boy from Bethlehem. But we'll get into that because, you see... Jonathan knows when God is moving in someone, when the spirit of God is with someone, and he knows it is with David. But even though Jonathan has made that incredible statement as far as his loyalty um, to David, David is questioning that now. And in fact, we're going to see David sort of in a different light than he's been shown in the rest of this narrative Um, Hey, we're going to start seeing him. He's been the golden boy up until now. Everything he's done has been perfect. But we're going to start seeing David in maybe little cracks in the armor. And and we're going to see Jonathan really be the one that shines in this. So anyway, he's testing and probing Jonathan to see where his loyalties really lie. Look there in the second verse at Jonathan's reply. And he said to him, far from it. You, You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. Now, we know that Jonathan is telling the truth. We know that he's completely clueless, that he has no idea that his father has tried to kill David. In fact, he is trusting his father when his father says, I won't kill David. So Jonathan doesn't know this, but we have this strange, interesting dynamic going on because David knows something that Jonathan doesn't know. David knows that Saul's tried to kill him three times in a row. Okay. Jonathan apparently doesn't know that, but David doesn't know if Jonathan knows it. So David is questioning whether Jonathan is in cahoots with his father and literally setting him up. And so he's doubting this man, Jonathan, who has just given his, abdicated his throne to him and, and given him his heart and his soul. It's, it's not David's Finest answer, uh, I mean His finest hour, which will be made apparent as we go along. Look at the third verse. But David vowed again. He's not going to let him go. Saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved... But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. You can see that David doesn't think too highly of his chances. Saul has almost killed him twice. Saul has all the resources. He has the army. David right now has nothing. And so he really doesn't think that he's going to be able to live through this. And so because of that... He's going to say some very hurtful things to Jonathan that Jonathan really doesn't deserve. But notice the way that Jonathan responds. This is important, folks, because David comes at him twice and he doesn't listen. And and he still is accusing Jonathan that maybe you know something about what your father's doing. And notice how Jonathan responds to him in the fourth verse. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. Jonathan doesn't quibble. He doesn't argue. He doesn't get angry and stomp out and say, how could you say that? How could you doubt me? He doesn't try to exonerate himself. He simply turns to David and says, I'm your servant. What can I do? You just tell me what to do. I am here to serve you. Very positive in his response. And brothers and sisters, I believe that's what our Lord wants from us. He doesn't want us questioning what he does. He doesn't want us second-guessing him. He doesn't want us analyzing him and trying to figure out, well, this happened and God means this and that happened and God means this. And you've got it all worked out in your mind. And then you get angry, God, when things don't work out the way that you want them to. Well, that that's not the model we have here. You see, Jonathan can tell us how to, how, to, how to navigate between two kingdoms because he is going to continually affirm his loyalty to David, no matter what David says to him. And so that's exactly what he, he does. Uh, again, the great irony here is who they, who they are. Jonathan's the prince, right? He's the one that should be on top, but he's not. Well, anyway... David continues, he's got a scheme. Now, in the fifth verse, we're beginning to climb that one side of the chiasm. Okay, so a point's going to be made. Again, just one point, not a whole bunch. But he's going to make a point. He wants to flush Saul out. And he's got a plan to do it. Notice what he says, fifth verse. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that the harm is determined by him. Okay, so David's got a plan. He wants to flush uh, Saul out and he's going to do it at the new moon feast. And most of the ancients had a. Feast that surrounded around either new moon or full moon depending on what kind of, uh, of, of, of way they looked at it. But by the time of David and Saul, it had become quite political. And it was a time for people to sort of gather at the king's table. Now, in those days, to have a seat at the king's table was a great privilege. And you're sitting up in the big table and everybody else sees you, that you're one of the king's men. Well, David has a seat at the king's table. But it also means that if you don't show up, everybody knows you're missing. And the the talk begins, did you know David didn't show up for the king's feast? So it's a slap. It's an insult to the king to do what David is suggesting. I'm not going to go. Three days of feast, I'm not going to go. Tell your father, if anything goes wrong, that I, I, I went to Bethlehem for a sacrifice, a yearly sacrifice for the clan. Now, that's also significant because that would have been a big deal. And that would have been a legitimate reason for David not to attend, because that was a a once-a-year sacrifice for all of his clan, so it would have been perfectly understandable. So if Saul is not looking for a way to condemn David, what Saul is going to do is say, good, good, just let me know when he gets back. And then David would know everything was okay. But if he gets angry over that, then he knows that Saul's got it out for him and is just looking for a reason to come down on him. But there's something that's important. I don't know if you caught it. David is asking Jonathan to tell a bold-faced lie for him. Because he has no intention of going to Bethlehem. Whether or not his clan is actually having that sacrifice, he's not. Go, he's going to go out in the field and hide. This is all a ruse. So he's asking Jonathan, there's no other way to look at this. He's asking Jonathan to tell a bold-faced lie for him. And it brings out something really important about Old Testament types and typology. David is a type of Christ, but David is not Christ he's not the same uh, moral character as Christ. So we don't want to be taking David's behavior and projecting on a Christ and say, this is okay. And we don't want to be taking Christ's behavior and projecting on David. Because typology is a little bit more complex than that. David's a type of Christ, but he is not Christ. And he's asking Jonathan to out and out lie for him. And actually, I, I you know, Jonathan rewords it when he actually tells his father. So it's hard to tell whether he, he's... Telling a lie or not, but it basically he, he's being disingenuous for David nonetheless. There was sort of a penchant of the Middle East for this kind of intrigue, this kind of subterfuge, you know, manipulating facts in order to um, to do this. But notice what David says next. And this is extremely hurtful to Jonathan. had to be. Look in the eighth verse. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Three daggers there that David throws at Jonathan, none of them worthy of him and none of them are certainly worthy of the love that Jonathan has For David, first of all, he says, deal kindly with your servant, questioning his steadfast, loving kindness. There's a Hebrew word for it, hesed or chesed. It's the loving kindness that so often we talk about God has for us. And and David is questioning that loving kindness. You know, you might be in cahoots with your father and setting me up. And so, uh, uh, you know, you need to prove yourself. Second thing that he does is he says, you have brought your servant into this covenant with you. Basically, what he's telling Jonathan is, I didn't pursue you. You pursued me. I didn't make a covenant with you. You made a covenant with me. And now it looks to me like you might be going back on that covenant. If indeed you were setting me up for your father to kill me. But boy, it's that third thing that he says that really must have hurt Jonathan. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. In other words, why should you let your father kill me by turning me in and setting me up? Go ahead and kill me yourself if that is what your intention is. So Jonathan has every right to stomp off mad, just to get furious and to go off because none of this is is right or, or is he worthy of. His love is totally different from that. But once again... Notice what Jonathan does. And brothers and sisters, this is where the lessons begin to come in for us when we're caught between these two kingdoms. Look in the ninth verse. Jonathan says, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? I mean, you can almost just feel the hurt dripping from these words as Jonathan says, I haven't done that and I would never do that. Notice what he does when he's caught between these two kingdoms and David comes down on him rather than getting angry, rather than stopping off. What does he do? He reaffirms his loyalty to David. He reaffirms his covenant. He doesn't fight. He doesn't argue. He doesn't get angry. He's selfless completely all the way through this. Now, Uh, One thing I want to point out, David may be a type of Christ, but Jonathan is a type of Christ-likeness. Jonathan has the heart of Christ. Jonathan is showing us the kind of loving kindness that we need to have in our relationship with christ It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of uh, of the the way that um, that we should be, and the way that we can handle being caught between the two kingdoms is to constantly reaffirm our loyalty to Christ to turn to christ to 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 to, to seek him in all that we do our Focus needs to be on Jesus. Well, David goes on in the 10th verse, and he says, okay, so how's this going to work? Here's my plan. I want you to go do this to your father and tell him this lie. But So how am I going to find out how this works? Look in the 10th verse. Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? In other words, who's going to tell me if your father really is trying to kill me? Well, that's the one side of the chiasm, and now the answer to that question is going to be in verse 18 as we go down the other side of the chiasm, okay? So that's the reason I'm going to jump to 18, because Jonathan is going to repeat some of what David said, but he's going to answer David's question of verse 10. So just going to stay with me, jump to 18, we're going to look at 18 through 22, which is the the other the point on the other side, and then we'll go back and pick out Pick up 11 through 17. Look in 18. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. A lot of repetition in chiasm. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. Now, if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are by beyond you, then go for the Lord has sent you away. So Jonathan comes up with this plan, right? He's going to go shoot arrows in the fields. And I don't know if, if if you like it this way, but this kind of seems a little juvenile to me. I, I mean, it 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 seems unnecessary. There's nobody there, okay, and he's going to shoot these arrows. And then send the boy out there to get the arrows and give David a code, then send the boy away. And then David's going to come out anyway and they're going to have a conversation. So it, it seemed this David's kind of demeanor and the first side of this chiasm and Jonathan's solution on the back side of this chiasm just, they just sort of seem unnecessary and, and sort of trivial, but there's a reason. Because the more trivial and, and, and light that these that the, the sides of the chiasm are, the more we focus on what's in the middle. And it's what's in the middle that matters. And, and that's Jonathan's statement to David. So that's why we're going to go back to the 11th verse and pick up the, the, the important part of this chiastic structure. Look in the 11th verse. And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out to the field. So they both went out into the field. This is kind of like turning a spotlight on. All right. It's, it's kind of like, why would he go into the field? Well, to get off by themselves, to get set aside so that they can, uh, that the conversation itself is what will truly be coming out in this. And so Jonathan pretty much is the one who's going to talk throughout the rest of this. Twelfth verse. Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. Now, what does that tell you? This is covenantal language. He's calling upon God himself to be a witness. Uh, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day. Behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm... The Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. This really shows how Jonathan is caught between two kingdoms, the kingdom of his father, the kingdom that he is the heir to, the kingdom that is in place, the kingdom that seems to have all of the resources at this particular point in time. But you see, Jonathan can look at David and he knows probably more than David knows himself that David is God's anointed and God is going to raise him up and he is going to be the king of Israel and his father is already on the way out. This is covenant language. Notice, I pointed out the beginning, but notice how Jonathan says, may this happen to me and more also if I don't fulfill my covenant. That is very similar to that old sovereign covenant like Abraham, God made with Abraham where they would chop the carcasses apart and they would walk through them and say, if I break this covenant, may this happen to me. Jonathan is saying to David, if I break this covenant that I am making with you right now, my loyalty, my allegiance to you, then may Saul turn his wrath upon me. May he take out everything that he intended to do to you. May he take it out on me because I want you to know that I am absolutely serious in this. And brothers and sisters, once again, we're in the same boat that Jonathan is in. Because we were born and probably will die in this kingdom of darkness, but we don't belong here. It's not our life. It is not our kingdom. We are children of light, and we look to Jesus. And so, therefore, to assess I mean, to to reaffirm and confirm your allegiance is the way that David is going to get through this. I'm sorry that Jonathan is going to get through this. Look in the 13th verse. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. I said at the outset that Jonathan was a man who recognized when the Lord was with someone. He he was sensitive, actually more so than David. He's more sensitive to David's situation with God having ordained him and the spirit rushing upon him constantly than even David was. Back when he went and he tackled the Philistines with just the armor bearer, the reason he did it was because he knew the Lord was with him. And Jonathan knows that if God is with me, who can be against me? If God is the one doing the fighting, who do I have to fear? I have no one to fear. So David, come on. Are you not paying attention? have no one to fear because God is with you. And and he also knew that God was no longer with his father Saul, that Saul was deteriorating and the Spirit had left him. Even though he had been with him earlier and Saul had done some amazing things, the Spirit working through him, now Jonathan was sensitive to the fact that his own father was a man that, um, uh, that, that the Spirit had deserted And so, therefore, his allegiance goes to David and not to his father. But then he shocks us. I'm sure he shocked David by what he says next. Look in the 14th verse. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. All of a sudden, Jonathan starts talking about Dying and being killed is his process. And you can see that he is a fear, not only for his own death, but of his family and, and his, um, the, 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 the family that would follow after him, his, his own descendants. And, and, and so what is Jonathan afraid of? Well, everyone knows, at least everyone knew at that time, what happened to the king's family once a new king rose to power The first thing that he did was go and kill all of the old king's family so that there would be no contenders to the throne. So, I mean, Jonathan knows that, but I don't think that's what he's afraid of. I don't think that that's his fear. I don't think that he actually feels that David, as much as their souls are knit together, that David is going to kill him and kill his family. Jonathan fears God. Jonathan fears that God is going to bring judgment upon the enemies of David, and Saul, his father, is... Enemy number one. Talk a man, about a man caught between two kingdoms. The, the Jonathan is in a dilemma because he knows that when God sometimes brings judgment upon a man, it's not just the man, it's his whole family that gets wiped out and I, even his animals sometimes are, are wiped out in that. So Jonathan is the one who is frightened for his life. David of course is running for his life and he thinks it's all about him, but no, it's about Jonathan at least in this passage. Because Jonathan fears, uh, uh, um, uh, 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 God's retribution upon his family. It's almost as if Jonathan is saying this, David, don't you get it? H- haven't you figured it out yet? You are God's anointed. I wasn't there in Bethlehem. I didn't see Samuel anoint you. But I can take one look at you and I know that you are God's man. And God is going to do amazing things through you and he's going to build a kingdom through you. And not my father, not me, not anyone can stand in the way of God when he anoints someone and he rises him to power. So you, you just take it easy. I'm the one who needs to be afraid because I'm the one who could very easily lose my life. So when you're caught in a situation like that, what would you do when You feel that you might be threatened, uh, your life might be threatened, your well-being might be threatened. What's the best thing that you can do in that situation? Exactly what Jonathan does to reaffirm his loyalty to the new king. And that's what happens in 16 and 17. Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Your enemies are my enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him that he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so Jonathan reaffirmed David's, uh, his love for David and David's love for him. And something that would last forever. And of course we saw David honor that when he sought out Mephibosheth. And brought him in to sit at his table. Well brothers and sisters I know I kind of rushed through that. I'm just really telling a story and, and not doing an exposition. But as, as we look at that on this New Year's Eve. Uh, let's just kind of uh, 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 bring it to to its head uh, and and find the principles that I wanted to share with you. On this night, as I said earlier, we're caught between two years. We can't go back. I mean, we lived in this 2022 for an entire year, and it's behind us. It's done. There's nothing in front of us in a couple of hours but 2023. And we don't know what's going to happen in that year. We can't see around the corner. Um, and so therefore we 're caught between two years, but brothers and sisters, primarily, we are caught between two kingdoms and I keep reiterating this, but if you are a Christian in a Christian context, you live in a sewer, you live. In the the kingdom of darkness. But you are not a child of darkness. You are a child of light. And when Jesus comes and saves you. And transforms you. And regenerates you. And you're born again. He lifts you out of that sewer. Out of that kingdom of darkness. So now you stand with your back to that kingdom. And there's nothing before you. But the glorious kingdom of Christ. And the glorious future that he has for you. But the problem is that the kingdom of darkness doesn't let go. It it, it thinks that it can still grab you. In fact, we've seen that Satan is maniacally deluded... He actually believes that he can beat God, and he will be fighting to beat God until he goes into the lake of fire, that Revelation tells us. So he doesn't pay any attention when Scripture says that once you're in the hands of God, no one can take you out of that. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, he doesn't pay attention to that. He actually believes that he can wrap his icy tentacles around you and pull you back into that kingdom of darkness. But brothers and sisters, what do you do when that begins? What do you do when you feel caught between those two kingdoms and that kingdom of darkness is reaching out to you and trying to pull you back? Well, what did Jonathan do? What did Jonathan teach us to do in this passage? You reaffirm your loyalty and allegiance to Christ. You turn to Christ. You confirm Christ. You pursue him. You love him. You walk on the water as long as you're looking at him. But as soon as you look at the water, you're going to sink. And so therefore, when you're caught between two kingdoms, the glory is the fact that the kingdom of darkness has no power over you. John tells us in his letter, his first letter, that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are children of light. We were of darkness, but now we're of light. And so, therefore, walk as children of light. And I'll leave you with the words of Jesus. He, put, he codified it and he brought it all together. This is what we do. This is what Jonathan did. And it's simply this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All of this will be added unto you. What a great verse to carry with us as we go into a new year, even though we may be caught between two kingdoms. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful for the beautiful images and pictures that you give us in Scripture and just your reassurance We have men like Jonathan who are just spiritual giants. I mean, they his heart is so much like the heart of Christ. He he is such a good model for us And, and never argues with you, never questions you, never says, why did you do what you did? I don't understand it. You're making me angry and shaking our fist at this guy. None of that with Jonathan. Jonathan was a man who loved David and loved you, and we can learn from that, that we reaffirm the fact that our allegiance is with you and with your kingdom. We are yours. What would you have us do? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.